welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month we'll be bringing you lively discussion and debate with inspiring women making a difference around the world, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. So listen in to hear the stories, insights and opinions of those setting the pace and being the change. Today we're talking to Sarah Anderson, founder and chief executive of The Listening Place. Founded in 2016, The Listening Place is a seven-day-a-week service that provides a warm and non-judgmental space where people who are feeling suicidal can talk about their feelings and to find valuable support. So we're delighted to welcome Sarah remotely uh, to the studio. Hello, Sarah. Hi there. Hi. So... I've given a little outline, a very brief outline of the listening place, but I'd like to uh, to find out a little bit more about uh, about it from you. You know, what? Why was it set up? What's its aim? Okay, its aim is to fill a gap in services which currently exist, which is there is no sustained face to face support for people who are feeling suicidal. Um, having been a Samaritan volunteer in central London for thirty seven years. Um, being director of a branch for three years. We used to provide a similar service uh, at Samaritans, but with a number of policies that were changed at Samaritans some years ago, that service was closed down. I'm very interested in in this this space in the mental health services. How did that become apparent to you, that there was this, this need specifically around people who are feeling suicidal to have a space to talk? What was the journey from, from that idea to opening the doors? Well, Having um, been aware of how effective services like this are um, from my work at Samaritans, I then researched with a number of psychologists, psychiatrists and psychotherapists to see whether the need actually existed. If you like, in commercial terms, it was my market research. And all the people I spoke to said there was a desperate need. And I spoke to Claire Girarda, who at the time was the president of the Royal College of GPs, And she suggested that if I set something like this up, we would have queues around the block. Um, I didn't particularly believe her, but it gave me sufficient impetus to actually set it up and see whether it would work. So we originally set up a pilot system. And the reason this gap exists is because if you're feeling depressed or suicidal or you go one stage further and you try and kill yourself, Um, In most cases, you'll probably end up in uh, an ED, uh, so an accident and emergency department in a hospital. And when you go in there, you'll first of all be seen by the medics who will check you out physically and keep you in overnight if necessary. But you'll also be seen in most areas by a liaison psychiatry department. And in about 99% of cases, um, you will be discharged from there to your GP. It's only a very small number who is sufficiently mentally unwell that they might stay in as an inpatient, possibly under section. So when you go to your GP, if indeed you go from there to your GP, you can be offered on the NHS um, what is called IAPS services, uh, improving access to psychological therapies. That's normally known as talking therapies. And um, GPs can offer that and they can offer um, antidepressants, which work incredibly well for some people. Uh, The problem with talking therapies, apart from the quite long waiting lists in many areas, is on the whole, they will not see people who are um, highly suicidal. They will not see people who have a diagnosis of a personality disorder. They won't see people with an addiction and they won't see people with a dual diagnosis. So 
uh, in huge number of cases, there is a revolving door where the access to services just doesn't exist because people are too suicidal for talking therapies uh, and perhaps not mentally uh, ill enough for secondary mental health care. Is it a, a sort of a case that they feel that, that they can't meet the duty of care? I mean, the, the specifics of somebody who has suicidal ideation is that, will they take that one step further? Is Is that what makes them very difficult to place and how is your service unique then in in within that issue? Well I think there are two reasons one is that talking therapies were specifically set up for people with mild to moderate depression and anxiety and if they're feeling suicidal that's one step further than they would wish to go. I also think that they are extremely risk averse and that's only my own opinion and therefore, they, they don't want to um, take the risk with people who are highly suicidal. So in terms of our service, we only see people, or at the moment, we speak to people on the phone who are suicidal, somewhere on a spectrum between mild suicide ideation and active risk, or people who have recently attempted to kill themselves. So it's a unique service for those people. I read with interest um, on the website that you you specifically don't give advice, for example. Tell me a little bit about how your service will help somebody who has, you know, is feeling very extreme and 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 possibly has suicidal ideation. What 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 your aim is uh, in providing that service? We provide um, non time limited support by appointment. So when let's take an example of where someone might have been referred, um, might have gone into an accident and emergency department. Um, now those accidents and emergency departments at the same time as discharging to the GP will also make a referral to us with the patient's permission. And when we receive a referral, we will telephone that person within 24 hours and we will offer them an appointment for an assessment within seven days. It's normally within two or three days. Um, And once we've assessed them, which is purely to check that they are suicidal, that they can access our premises, which are in central London, um, and that uh, they understand what we can do, then we immediately set them up with appointments with what we call a listening volunteer. So since we opened nearly four years ago, we've recruited and trained nearly 700 volunteers. um, And we've also had referrals for about, well, nearly 6,000 suicidal people. And those referrals come in from A&E departments, as I said, from GPs, from mental health triage services. So 68% of our referrals come in from the NHS and the rest come in from other voluntary organisations, charities, from the police, universities, social services, and people can self-refer. Although, because we don't advertise, we only get about 8% of our um, visitors, which is what we call the people we support, um, by self-referral means. So those people, once they've been taken on by us, will be given regular appointments with the same very well-trained volunteer who will have a 50-minute appointment with them and will offer supportive befriending. They don't need to give advice. What they need to do is help people to explore their own feelings around suicide, what their options are. Most people who feel suicidal, um, they're not in a situation where they actively want to die. They just don't want to live the way they're feeling. And so they narrow down their options to suicide. 
So for us, it's being able to talk about those very taboo subjects and really explore what it means to them to kill themselves and what options they might have. And in the end, they have to come to their own conclusions. We can't stop people killing themselves any more than anyone else can. But we have a very, very high success rate in reducing suicidality. Where where do you get your volunteers from? I mean, are they people who have previously uh, had experience with suicide or are they just people that want to help or what what's the sort of range so now we don't advertise at all for volunteers and they all come to us through word of mouth initially when we set up they were mostly people um, I knew either who had been Samaritans um, for a very long time and were very experienced or friends and family and when I ran out of friends and family we started uh, talking to university students and so on. And we had a lot of um, universities putting forward people, particularly people who were studying psychology, counselling, psychotherapy and so on. And now um, all of our recruitment is through word of mouth and our volunteers range from uh, 19 years of age up to 85 years of age. They're people in work, out of work, people who are retired, housewives, And it is a completely eclectic mix of people. And the one thing they have, I guess, in common is that they all give a damn. Yeah, and that's the key thing. They've got to care. They've got to care and they're, they're doing it because they care. And what they form is very healthy attachments with the people they're seeing. And people don't have to repeat themselves. We run a totally confidential service, which means they can say what they like. They can talk about suicide without fear of losing control. They can talk about suicide if they have children without fear of social services becoming involved. And for people, the feedback we get is that is hugely liberating and they will say it is the only place. Many, many of our visitors say it is the only place they can talk without fear of losing control and really be heard what is being said and what they're feeling. So it gives them a space, as you say, to explore their own mental health. It's such a valuable thing to be able to give people the time and space to work out their lives, really, isn't it? I think it is invaluable. And I think people on the in general don't have the time to listen to other people. Likewise, people feel an absolute need to give advice, which is never helpful. Um, It might be helpful if you're trying to decide on your career, but actually when it comes to emotions, advice is not usually helpful and people will make up their minds for themselves and it's helping people to facilitate that. Does does that hold true uh, in mental health in general? I mean, you know, obviously suicide is at the very extreme end of a mental health continuum. For for people that possibly aren't at that stage, is it that, that people need to be able to just to be heard and to be able to speak rather than to be guided and sorted out, if you like? Well, I think I think um, mental ill health has lots of strange connotations. I suppose you could broadly, in lay terms, split mental health into conditions where you're in touch with reality, for example, depression, anxiety, and where you might be out of touch with reality, something like schizophrenia. Many people who feel suicidal do not consider they have any mental ill health problems at all. Um, They see that as the um, best thing to do under the circumstances. So I think mental ill health, it is stigmatised. And I would suggest, again, from a personal point of view, that the NHS and psychiatrists 
are very much better at dealing with psychotic illnesses, um, for example, schizophrenia, bipolar, and so on, where medication can work extremely well. Medication can work very well with depression as well, but um, there is a need for um, talking and to be able to express yourself and feel cared about, um, which I think in most hospitals there just isn't the time for. There's too much emphasis placed uh, naturally on risk assessments, um, and the risk assessments are come, if you like, <laughs> in advance of compassion and listening. So I just wanted to talk to you about why uh, it was so important to you personally to lead on on change in the mental health field and to challenge the status quo, because that is what you're doing with the listening place effectively, aren't you? You're challenging a, a, a long-held status quo, certainly in terms of people who are feeling suicidal and the support that they can get. I think because I'm uh, very strong-minded, when I believe in something, I think get on with it. So I've sat on many, many government committees uh, in my lifetime and talked about theories and policies and so on. And I suppose I have a sort of JFDI attitude to life, which is just get on and do it. Not quite those at uh, that acronym, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that actually we went from the idea uh, in August 16 to setting up as a charity in October and uh, actually, fifth, sorry, 15, the idea was in August 15, the charity was set up by October 15, and we had opened our doors with premises um, by the beginning of 16. So I think that just has, it's it's no different to running a business. I, I, I've never worked in the charity sector, except as a volunteer. And running the listening place where we now have 10 employees is just like running a business. We run it. Um, and we just get on and you just jump over barriers and you don't let people say it can't be done. And you don't let people say, well, we can't work on NHS premises because the cleaning contract doesn't last that long. Or you just keep going. And I think that's no different to business. So I, I, I just um, I'm pig headed, I guess. I mean, you volunteered. You said you volunteered with the Samaritans for 35 years and 37 years. 37 yeah. years. And you were a director there for two. Um, in terms of just generally in, in mental health terms, what was the most important thing that you learned through doing that? What did you take from that experience to, for example, the listening place? I suppose I took a lot of things. I mean, my main role was running businesses and being non-executive director. So this was very much volunteering in my spare time. But it was always a very important part of my life. And I think what I learned was that giving people space to talk um, is exceptionally important. I also learned, and why, why really I set up the listening place, is because um, people are often not acutely suicidal they're often chronically suicidal. And it's not a case of, gosh, something's happened, I suddenly feel suicidal, I speak to someone and all's well with the world. The fact is people need to be heard in a sustained and continuous way. And for most people, they don't want to repeat their story every time. Or if you're in, a, in a, with a doctor, moving from doctor to psychiatrist to mental health nurse and having to continually repeat yourself and so having a relationship whereby people know what's going on in your life is something that's that's completely invaluable. But I but I learned a lot a lot from Samaritans and I learned a lot. Um, I think it, it applies to every aspect of my life. 
uh, whether it be work and employing people or whether it be my children and so on, that actually listening is so much more valuable than giving advice. Mm, God, that's, yeah, that's a very profound, if we could all understand that a little bit better. I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about the the COVID crisis again, because obviously this is where we are at at the moment, but it seems much more acceptable now to be able to say, you know, I'm feeling down or I'm feeling anxious to people, including people at work and people actually hear you. They're not trying to run away from it so much. Do you think that's true? I think it has improved enormously. However, I would still maintain that in most work environments, if you say you need to take time off for an oncology uh, appointment, there would be no question of anyone uh, not allowing that. If you said I need to take time off to see a psychotherapist or a counsellor, you might find there's a slightly different response. Likewise, if you're bereaved because uh, someone you love had cancer, you get enormous amounts of sympathy. If you're bereaved by suicide, then there's a huge amount of stigma to that and people thinking, what did you do wrong and and so on. So I think despite the fact that uh, it is being talked about a lot more, I think uh, it's not enough in the context of people really understanding that that actually there's no difference when we're um, supporting people who are suicidal I always say there's no difference between the volunteer and the person we're supporting it's just a different point in their lives and I think there is a a definite them and us about uh, mental ill health it's not and and sometimes I think it would be better talking about emotional health uh, rather than mental health um, because we all we all need emotional health, and that doesn't mean we suffer from a significant mental ill health uh, condition. Emotional health is not a them and us. It's not an othering, is it? Um, which we've obviously got much further to go. I mean, in terms of businesses, particularly, how much more should businesses be doing to support the mental health of their employees? I mean, what are they crucially missing at the moment? I think it I think it's a great shame if people lose people over mental ill health issues um as employees um but I'm a very commercially minded person and if you're running a small business and uh, let's say 10 people in your business and one person is off sick you know that's that's 10% of your workforce now that that's hugely significant. And it doesn't matter whether it's physical ill health or mental ill health. Having people off sick is is difficult for uh, when you're running a business. But I do think there is much more that could be done to signpost people uh, to get support for mental ill health issues and also to get training for businesses to get training in how they can deal with it themselves. So, you know, it's quite scary if you say to someone, how do you feel? And they say, not, not at all well. Actually, mm. what you want to hear is, I'm fine, how are you? <laughs> the very British way of dealing with things. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, and people are still concerned about asking people whether they feel suicidal. Uh, but, you know, people still have this uh, interesting idea that if you ask someone if they're suicidal, that it's going to put the idea uh, into their heads. Whereas, Anna, I think if I said to you, um, 
are you feeling suicidal at the moment? You're hardly going to say, gosh, that's a really good idea. I'd never thought of that. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, no, exactly. But, but that fear does exist. And the fear exists that if you ask and they say, yes, they do feel suicidal, where does someone go after that? So I think there is a whole piece around um, awareness raising and training uh, that is needed and that could help and that people at work who have been supported through mental ill health or physical ill health, quite frankly, are incredibly loyal to those employers. I mean, just on, on a personal level, how how then, you know, should people look at supporting people uh, in terms of, you know, we've just talked about these asking people if they feel suicidal and maybe the sense of responsibility that comes with that because of the taboo, because it's not talked about, because it's not understood, I think, by very, very many people. What what can people do to uh, help to foster good mental health in the people around them and in themselves, actually? Well, I think for a start, they might want to say how concerned they feel for that person. And would they allow them to try, you know, if they don't feel able to support them themselves, would they mind if if they made a referral to an organisation like ours? Well, actually, I don't think there are any other organisations like ours, but um, we're we're only in London at the moment. But, but, you know, there are resources out there. And I think it's about, um, you know, taking the same attitude to mental ill health as physical ill health you know what would you say to an employee who said they've just been diagnosed with cancer um you're hardly going to change the subject and say yeah and hope you have a good weekend um you're likely to pursue (laughs) you're likely to pursue that conversation and I think I think that's what's important and I also think that some of the most effective businesses who work well on this is where it comes from the leadership of the organisation and where leaders are prepared to get up and say, well, actually, if it's relevant, that they've suffered themselves and they've succeeded in whatever they do. And therefore, um, it, it stops labelling people that, that when you talk about mental ill health, it equals, it conjures up something in people's mind of someone walking along the street talking to themselves or... Um, yeah, it just makes it, it, it humanizes people who suffer from mental ill health or emotional health, as you said. I, I love this this phrase. I mean, that's absolutely uh, the, you know a key change that we could make is to start talking in terms of emotional health. I mean, how, how do you look after your emotional health? What's 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 sort of cornerstones for you? Um, for me, I have an incredibly long suffering husband. Um, <laughs> 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 he puts up with. <laughs> all my oddities uh, and bad temper Um, and likewise my adult children are (laughs) incredibly supportive I know that if I need to talk I need to talk and I'll find someone whether it be my uh, adult children who who are both volunteers for our charity who um, can listen to me or other volunteers I'm aware when I'm getting in a state and I I managed um, pretty much a workaholic so I managed to stress myself out quite easily but I'm aware of what's going on and I think having self-insight is really important and being able to recognize that actually asking for help people really like giving a help Um, they find it easier to give than to take in the main you just have to reach out and ask and yes and be like you say be aware before it starts to snowball perhaps because I think there is a sense of stoicism isn't it that we just carry on carry on carry on white knuckling it if you like but actually yeah 
that's not necessary. You know, you can you can talk to people, you can let the pressure out of the valve. Yeah, and I think friendships, real friendships, are about the people you can talk to in the bad times as well as good times. I think for a lot of people, they are seen as, say, hail fellow, well-met, successful people, and they don't want to show any other side of themselves. But we're all multifaceted, and um, that's why it's sometimes easier to speak to a stranger if you if you have a, a, a facade that you're very good at putting on. Um, it's sometimes easier to speak to a complete stranger. So the people we support aren't necessarily people who are isolated. They might have families, but it's something that they they can't talk about at home or they don't want to, because actually for many people, if you're depressed, if you're living with someone who's depressed, it can be incredibly boring. Um, And so maybe you have to take that out of the home environment. I would imagine that sometimes that might also contribute to a to a dynamic that doesn't help you to move forward from where you are as well. If you're just sort of talking to the the same people in your group, it's not a happy place, is it? Quite literally. No. no. And I mean, we've evaluated, you know, we were very keen when we set this up to make sure that what we were doing was was well run and, um, ha- you know, could be validated. And we have 14 mental health professionals who give their time to us pro bono to offer support with training, supervision for our volunteers and evaluation. And we've evaluated everything we've done since day one. And we know there is a highly significant um, reduction in both suicidality and distress after three and six months of seeing the people we see. So we review people every three months, but it might be that we carry on seeing them and uh, if that's what's needed. So it's a, it's, we, we know it works. And as we do our evaluation where things come up that aren't right, we will change them. We very, because we're not funded uh, by any statutory services or the NHS, we can do what is right for our visitors uh, without, without fear of um, <laughs> anything, really. As you said earlier, you're, you're just in London at the moment and, and you're doing a telephone service while we're in lockdown during the pandemic. Um, What's your vision for the growth of the listening place? Do you want to take it out to other parts or introduce perhaps a telephone service alongside? No, I don't think we'll. I mean, we have transitioned from a uh, totally face-to-face service by appointment to a totally telephone service by appointment. And we're currently um, supporting people by appointment, about 80 people a day, eight zero people a day, um, seven days a week still. However, we will go back when when, when uh, lockdown lifts to a face-to-face service, which people find invaluable in terms of um, being able to get out and seeing someone. Body language is incredibly important and, and having that safe space. And so in terms of expansion, uh, I think that it is inevitable that we will expand our um, referrals at, at the moment, or just pre-lockdown, were about 300 new referrals every month. That's without advertising. And we know that we need to expand. We're looking for a second premises in London at the moment. Um, we are. We will, we will expand geographically, um, but we want to do it in a measured way that means we can retain a model of uh, very, very fast response times and very, very fast appointment times so that there aren't waiting lists. Um, so we're doing that in a very measured way. But it, it, it's a it's a replicable service. 
and it would be great to be able to roll it out across the country in time. Do you think that there would come a time where you would partner with, for example, the NHS in any way? Um, or is it, as you said, best to keep it totally separate? Well, we do keep it totally separate. But although um, we have a different confidentiality policy to the NHS, um, they would put safeguarding, obviously, above um confidentiality whereas confidentiality is core to whatever we do we do have a very very strong relationship with the NHS and as I said they make up 68% of our referrals but additionally um, for example King's College Hospital in Denmark Hill have just started letting us use some of their rooms at the weekend to give us extra space I'm always juggling three things enough volunteers enough money and enough space. Uh, And pre-lockdown, the biggest uh, barrier was space. So um, we are talking to the NHS about letting us use rooms, which they have, which they're not using because we're open 12 hours a day from nine in the morning till nine in the evening. And some NHS premises aren't used at evenings and weekends. So we do partner with them to that extent. And we have a fantastic relationship with our referrers and additionally since um covid-19 we we've been offering support to nhs uh, key workers who don't need to be suicidal to be in touch with us for support so we so we work very closely with the nhs it's just we have it, it's important for people to recognize we are not funded by them and we are not part of them the need to, to be heard is, is there on all levels. Um, I think possibly that the key message from uh, today's podcast episode is that the support is there. Um, and it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you, Anna.